It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Hi, and welcome to the Speedway Show. Our topic today is Through God's Eyes. This is actually a continuation of a conversation we started last week. When you look through God's eyes, you see that you are being guided in every moment with infinite wisdom and inexhaustible love, that life is unfolding with indescribable beauty and grace, that spirit is gently urging you to align your will with divine will and be a source of love, hope, and healing energy to all who cross your path. Sir Bolsta is the author of Through God's Eyes, Finding Peace and Purpose in a Troubled World. So, welcome to the Speedway Show. Thank you, Speedway. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. It's great talking to you. Well, tell us now, all of you listeners who are listening to the show, if you didn't happen to catch last week's show, I encourage you to go and listen because we are going to cover different topics, and it's a fascinating topic. And as Phil said, uh, last week we could probably talk uh, about this topic for hours and hours. Um, But -hmm. we're going to cover, in case you missed last week's show, we're going to cover a little bit of the background. So so tell us a bit about uh, your background and how you got started writing. Oh, sure. I I probably wrote coming out of the womb. (laughs) I was always (laughs) writing as a kid, you know, I would create little family newspaper. Uh, um, I did song parodies, uh, poems, essays, what, whatever came to me. I just went with the flow. And uh, as an adult, I worked um, from late 20s to mid-30s as an operations manager for a small investment management firm in Minneapolis. And I loved that, you know, balancing bank statements at the end of every month and and things like that, because numbers have always been a second language to me, and I liked work that uh, required me to be logical and methodical and, and super organized. And in my early 30s, though, uh, the creative urge tapped me on the shoulder, and I couldn't ignore it. Uh, I, I lost interest in the work I had been doing, and, and I started to write professionally instead. And I didn't go about that in a smart way, but I did get to where I wanted to go eventually. <laughs> But, but, you know, with, with Through God's Eyes, I did not choose to write this book. It chose me. And it's, I write because it's who I am, and, and I don't have a choice in the matter. It's what I was born to do. So I'm a writer, and I write. <laughs> what, uh, what made you write Through God's Eyes in particular? Why did you write this book? Well, I still remember this moment. Uh, when I w- was getting interested in spirituality, I went looking for a book that laid out all the spiritual principles that I was learning in a logical, organized, uh, and engaging way. And I assumed there had to be at least one book that explained how all of these principles interact, how to weave them together into a cohesive worldview, and, and how to practically apply all that wisdom to daily life but I couldn't find that book. And I remember thinking, well, I I guess I have to write it myself someday. 
Um, I wasn't ready to write it at that point, but I was determined that all of that knowledge and all that wisdom should be gathered together in one easy-to-follow book so that others wouldn't have to go on a giant spiritual scavenger hunt and piece it all together on their own like I had to. And how long did it take you to write this book? (laughs) Well, I knew in 1997 that I needed to write it. Um, but like, as I said, I wasn't wise enough or experienced enough to write it at that time. Uh, even though I didn't know exactly what the book was going to end up looking like, I began collecting the concepts and quotes that I knew would be included in it. I could recognize the pieces of the puzzle, even if uh, the entire puzzle wasn't fully in view. So finally, uh, it took me about eight years of uh, researching and studying, and I finally felt capable of competently interpreting and articulating that ancient wisdom. So eight years after that, the book was completed. So it took about 15, 16 years. Wow. Well, that took some patience. But I wasn't, writing, I wasn't writing in those eight years consistently. I would take time off because I had to earn a living at the same time. So... Um, towards the last few years, though, I, I had a sense of urgency because I thought if this book isn't done and something happens to me, that's inexcusable. I really needed to fulfill that mission. Well, that's pretty good, though, because over 16 years you can get sidetracked in many different ways. And uh, yes. I think it, it, it can be easy to sort of put it down and never get back to it. So I'm impressed that you could actually put it down for half that time and still come back and finish it. That's pretty good. Well, it's when you have a mission in life and you feel that you're being tapped on the shoulder and say, hey, why do you think you're here? Do it. Um, it's just something that you need to do. And you all, it's not something that's a sense of duty alone. It's, it's a joy. It's your passion. It's, I didn't want to work on anything else. I I loved working on it because I knew it was my life's work and I knew it had an important message. I needed to get it in the hands of people who could benefit from it. Hmm. What is the primary message of True God's Eyes? Well, actually, you you said it yourself in the introduction Um, because if I had to sum up the core teaching in one sentence, of the book, mm-hmm. I would say, with love and devotion, align your will with divine will and be a source of love, hope, and healing energy to all who cross your path. What was your biggest challenge in writing this book? You know, Speedway, I, I never saw any part of it as a challenge. Every moment mm-hmm. I spent really? working on it, was an absolute joy. And you know you found your calling when even the drudgery part of it is enjoyable. Uh, Honest to God, I felt like even if I wasn't in the mood, when I started working on it, I would come alive and everything just flowed into place. And I felt like I was getting guidance dozens of times throughout the day, day after day, month after month, year after year. It was just an awesome experience. Wow. Why did you choose this particular title, Through God's Eyes? What does that mean to you? Well, that's actually a cool story. Um, I attended a 1998 workshop 
with Dr. Ibrahim Jaffe. He's the founder of the University of Spiritual Healing and Sufism. And Ibrahim shared a life-changing story with us in his class. He said, and it's just a quick story, it's a simple story, but it's so powerful. He said that after watching a TV nature program in which a lion savagely ripped apart a gazelle, he had been distraught. Um, He went into meditation and he implored God, how could you allow such carnage and tragedy to exist? And he told us that the response he received humbled him and restored his faith in divine intelligence. And I quote him as saying, I felt and saw through inner revelation how this incident was experienced from a higher level as pure love and that it was beautiful beyond description. And then Ibrahim explained that this world may appear cruel and harsh to our unenlightened eyes, but but even the brutality inherent in the animal kingdom has meaning and purpose and the stark beauty all its own. And if we look through God's eyes, we see that simply by living our lives, we all serve each other in ways both, both simple and profound. And from that day on, I challenge myself to see the world through God's eyes, and to the extent that I could, of course, so that I also could witness every moment unfolding with beauty and love and perfection. And I want to stress, I look through God's eyes to the extent that I can, because some people have said, how dare you say that you can look through God's eyes? And it's not something that you can just switch and look, actually look through God's eyes. It's an exercise to to expand your perception, expand your awareness, and take you out of your own ego and try to look at life with a broader view from a higher place. Mm-hmm. My, you know, a lot of my understanding, or at least I think, my understanding of the divine actually came when I had children because yeah. there's a lot to learn from being a parent and the love that you have for your children and you know we're often god is our divine parent right in the first uh show last week you you talked about the fact that you like to think of god as your divine mother which i like too because there are some days where you just want your mom but you know when you when you think about that concept of looking through god's eyes i have to say that when I started watching my two children fighting over this and that and squabbling and coming to me as the referee, and I realized that, you know, on most days I didn't really care that much who did wrong to whom because I loved them just the same. And no matter what they did wrong, um, I would always love them. And that, for me, allowed me to think in a different way about God's love for us the children because so many of us think oh I cannot run God's love and oh if I do this God's not going to love me anymore and actually you know everything that every religious principle that you look at that talks about God's love talks about it being unending you cannot outrun it you cannot do enough wrong for God to stop loving you and sometimes it's through the I find sometimes it's the way that we love and the way that we practice love for each other, for our children, for the people around us is that paradigm shift to try and change your worldview and expand it that allows us 
to have a closer walk with God because you start to see in a different way what that level of love might look like, and that's just with our limited understanding. Yes, that's very well said. Um, we are so we, we are unconditionally loved. There's so much love just bombarding us in every moment. Our task is just to improve our knowing of it and just to become aware of this unconditional love that is we're being bathed in. And I love the way um, an unknown saint said it. He said, abandon yourself into the arms of love. And when you give yourself to divine love like that, what you get back is incredible. You urge people to align their will with divine will. And this is really along what we've just been talking about. How do you do that? Well, the short answer, because the long answer would take three shows, I think, but uh, at least but the short answer is purify your heart through the regular practice of spiritual affirmations, meditation, and practicing the presence of God, which means by keeping your love for God in your thoughts as often as possible and maintaining an ongoing dialogue with God. It, it takes a great amount of discipline devotion and time to attain a higher level of consciousness and maintain it but that is the greatest uh, challenge you can take on and a lot of people say well wait a minute that that's impossible I can't think of God all the time well think of it this way when you have fallen in love you may be at work doing work that you're concentrating on but in the back of your mind you're thinking about your beloved all the time mm-hmm because yep. you're lovesick. And do the same with God. Just fall in love with God. And through those three ways, affirmations, which we talked about last show, meditation, and practicing the presence of God, and I talk about how to do those things in the book, then you can really make so much progress. It may be incremental, but over time, you'll be amazed at the way you have come to really dedicate your life to being serving as a pure instrument of divine love. I find that uh, when I, one of the things that I, and it does take practice. You said we talked about this in, in more detail during the first show, the fact that it does take practice. It's not the thing that's going to come on day one. But one of the things that I found was helpful and, and kind of got me there without me truly thinking about it and focusing on it. But but something that is helpful sometimes is just to think of God as your constant companion. Because most people, uh, or at least I, I believe this is true, I think most people talk to themselves, Right. So instead of, and we talk to ourselves all day long, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and you say whatever you say, and, and so you had two funny things that you said in, in the first show uh, about, you know, the two ways you can, you can sort of self-talk when you get up in the morning. But all of those conversations that we have with ourselves, I just started having those conversations with God, and it was just 
it doesn't have to be important stuff, right? Usually we, sometimes we go to God when we have the thing that's important. Oh, Divine Mother, would you please make sure I get this job? And oh, will you protect my so-and-so? And oh, I'm traveling, and oh, I'm sick, and oh, this and that. Um, but actually, I just started to have the mundane conversations The you know, did you see that almost happen? <laughs> and and it, it's just it's just a day-to-day stuff. And I found that actually, before I knew it, I, I kind of got used to God as my constant companion. We go cycling together. I talk about going on dates with God, and it's just me and God. And uh, we go cycling along the lake. I live in Chicago now. I'm excited about being in Chicago. It's gorgeous on the lake show. And, and, and there's nobody there who can enjoy it as much as the creator of that lake because I look at it and I'm just like, wow, you were really thinking when you created this. And uh, I find that <laughs> it, it's easy when you just treat God as your companion as opposed to this distant you know, we have so many conceptual concepts of God, but rather than this distant, you know, thing to be feared or, you know, this is the one that I go to only when I have problems or only when I have an issue or only when something needs to be fixed, but just to have a friendship. And I find that that, for me at least, was, was truly, truly useful. And along those lines, I'm going to just hammer on the head something you said earlier in a more direct way. Because some people listening to this show might be thinking, well, shucks, isn't it kind of arrogant for someone to assume that they can see through God's eyes, Phil? Uh, Not at all. But first let me say that what you described and the way you live your life as having Mm -hmm. God as your constant companion, that's a testament to the power of practicing the presence of God, and you do it beautifully. But as soon, as far as um, arrogant, if, if it's arrogant for someone to assume they can look through God's eyes, I look at it as just the opposite. It is the path to humility. Because by challenging yourself to look through God's eyes, again, to the extent that you can, you will gain a broader, big-picture perspective and move from self-absorption to self-awareness and be humbled and awed by the beauty and magnificence of life. Do you have a personal example, because I'm assuming that the folks who are listening to this have not, listen, have not read the book, and actually one of the things that I thought was pretty cool about the book is you put so much of yourself in the book, and um, we talked about that in the first show, but do you have some examples or one example that you can share with us about something in your own life that pivoted when you started seeing things more through God's eyes? You know, I had, yeah, actually, um, a few years back, I had a, a realization. I had always been a people pleaser, and I found myself occasionally acting in ways that I thought people wanted me to act or saying things that I thought they wanted me to say or not not reacting authentically because I was Mm -hmm. worried about pleasing people. And I know that lots of people can relate to that. But then I had a realization. You know what? If I just choose to please God, and I acknowledge that everything I do is for God and everything is, I have is from God. And if I live to please God in everything I do, 
then that liberates me from the prison of other people's expectations and judgments. Because any concerns over whether others like or respect you drop away. And that frees you up to be more authentic and transparent and loving. That leads to other people liking and respecting you. So it comes full circle. That essentially, essentially, I think, okay, I, I choose to please God in every moment. Whatever I think, say, and do is geared, is directed, is designed to please God and God only. And when you please God, even if the whole world is against you, you have peace. And if you don't please God and the whole world thinks you're awesome, you're miserable. So if I know, I know that if I please God, then I can accept whatever consequences come what may. And that may be someone else's negative reaction. That's fine. I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to please God. And when you have that pure intention, then everything becomes easier because it becomes so simple. Please God, nothing else, life works. Well, and how ironic, as you describe it, that actually when you are aiming to please people, I suspect that, you know, for a lot of us who have tried, first of all, you generally fail. And I think you generally fail because oftentimes when we try to please other people, there's an element of inauthenticity that people mm-hmm. can sense, right? So nobody likes, a, like, a, like at work, for example, you know, I know all the brown nosers um, because I can see them coming. <laughs> so I'm not really impressed by that. I just thought that was interesting that you said, you know, when you, when you please God, then somehow that thing that you were originally trying to accomplish, which was to please people, often happens because people see you and they see the authentic behavior and they respect it. And sometimes people will like you just because you have the courage to do things that they don't have the courage to do. That's very true. But one thing is that no matter how pure your intentions are, no matter how loving your heart, no matter how perfectly you treat people, there are always going to be some people who think you're the worst thing that ever happened because there are some <laughs> people who just like to spit in other people's ice cream and that you got to accept that. Um, but I don't worry about that anymore. I don't worry about it anymore. I used to and now it doesn't bother me. What is the difference? In your book, you talk about ego versus spirit. What is the difference between ego and spirit? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I talk about ego and spirit quite a bit in the book. And one way I, I like to point out the difference between ego and spirit is it's the difference between thinking and awareness. Thinking or the ego. Thinking is realization via the self-contained content of your mind. So it's limited by the confines, the boundaries of your mind. Awareness is self-realization by conscious attunement with divine intelligence, which transcends your mind. And self-realization is the knowing that in body, mind, and spirit, you are one with the entire universe, all of creation. So it's really um, ego is confined to you, and awareness is uniting with all of 
you know, in divine intelligence and in all of creation. But isn't having a healthy ego important? Well, it depends on how you define healthy. If you're just looking at it in the context of this life is the only life there is and take spirituality and God out of the picture, then people will still say having a healthy ego is important. But I, I look at it differently. You see, when, when the soul aligns itself with the mind and body, it unconsciously manifests as ego. But when the soul realizes its divine nature, it transcends the body consciousness of the ego, and then your spirit aligns with God. Your spirit aligns with spirit, which is God. And a spiritually healthy individual's ego, here's what's key, a spiritually healthy individual's ego operates in service to their spirit. If they define themselves purely in terms of ego, then they are not truly living a spiritual life, and I don't view that as healthy. Mm. Well, let's touch on a couple of other aspects of this book, because as as we said before, we could talk for ages and just scratch the surface. And listeners, I truly encourage you to get a copy of this book. It's a very good read, and uh, you will be able to pick it up via the links that we provide to you on spiway.com. Uh, for the posting for this or the first show that we did last week. Why doesn't God prevent people from doing horrible things to others? Uh, This is one of the things that I suspect a lot of people wonder about. If God is so loving, then how come he allows such horrible things to happen? Right. I mean, that's why a whole lot of people don't believe in God, because they're looking at the surface of events. Um, My take on it is that God does not directly interfere because, by definition, free will would be rendered meaningless if it were interfered with. You either have free will or you don't. And consequently, God's plan for each of us uh, may weather continual course corrections just as each move on a chessboard reconfigures our universes of choices going forward. Um, And in extreme cases... Our life's plan maybe could be adapted, it could be rewritten, or even postponed. But even then, karmic forces are at work and and angels hover near. One way or another, in this life or another, our soul lessons will play out as planned because fulfillment is certain, but circumstances and timing are not. Now that, that, there's a whole lot there that people say, Mm -hmm. "Wait, wait a minute, wait. Talking about another life, what did you say? What does karma have to do with it? Um, free will. I mean, that's why is a complex system that everything of life, everything is interconnected with everything else. And again, I am not the creator of this um, approach to spirituality. This is ancient wisdom, and you can't just look at the surface of life and say, well, if I don't see what I want to see, that means there's no such thing as God. That's like going out on the ocean and saying, well, I can't see fish on the surface of the water, therefore there's no such thing as fish. You know, you have to look deeper beneath the surface, and there is incredible complexity to it that, that we can't even begin to comprehend. But these are some core ideas that may um, offer some form of explanation that to the answer to that question. But 
If somebody says, I know exactly why something happens, beware of that because <laughs> we, we cannot. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's way too complex for us to drill down to that level of detail, but we can understand some basic core concepts. So does everything happen for a reason, though? You know, given that divine guidance may be thwarted by another individual's act of free will, it's more accurate to say that everything that happens has purpose or creates purpose. Because no matter what happens, God works with what happens to guide you back on course and often with new purpose-driven priorities whenever possible. And that is a key takeaway here. If we have free will and God does not interfere with that free will, then that's a wild card that what happens to us will eventually have purpose if it doesn't to begin with, but that's that's just the, the kind of um, loophole in saying everything happens for a reason. Well, you have to take free will into account. Mm-hmm. Well, then, and this is a related question, why does God allow so much suffering to exist? So it's one thing to say, you know, free will, certain people choose to do certain things. Um, mm-hmm. But why then does, and, and not all suffering is the result of necessarily, you know, deserved, um, the, sort of the direct uh, consequence of something that somebody did that they actually deserved to suffer. So why does God allow so much suffering, do you think? Well, the way I look at it, and my interpretation of this wisdom, is asking why God permits suffering and expecting a 30-second answer that perfectly explains it is like asking for one equation, one equation that explains calculus. And so many people say... Do you have one? Okay. <laughs> no. If I did, you know, so many people say, you know, okay, prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that suffering has value. Well, I can't give it to you with a soundbite. Big questions like this cannot be taken out of context and addressed to standalone issues. That's the whole point behind writing through God's eyes because it presents a comprehensive worldview that explains how and why multiple spiritual principles are at play in any given situation. Complex questions have complex answers. You know, everything works with everything else. If you take one item, one principle out of context, it won't be able to stand on its own, logically. But if you look at the interplay between all of creation and all of the spiritual principles at work, then you begin seeing the big picture. And it's also important to note that many people view their suffering as a gift. And I have some examples in my book. Uh, for example, a friend of mine, I befriended former triathlon champion Jim McLaren. Uh, he told me he was grateful. He was grateful for the two vehicular accidents that rendered him a quadriplegic. And I quote him, he said, even though both accidents were devastating at the time, I now view them as gifts and not tragedies. He told me he would not trade his years of paralysis for a restored, healthy body. He said, quote, having to admit to my own dependency and vulnerability actually made me more powerful. For me, the journey has always been about going deeper 
and becoming more of a human being. And I'll give you one more quick example. I interviewed Holocaust survivor Dr. Robert Fish, who lives in Minneapolis, and I've gotten to know him. Um, I sent him a copy of the book, and and we've been exchanging emails, and I, I wrote on my blog quite a bit about him. His attitude is that the suffering he endured allowed him to appreciate every opportunity and blessing in life. In his new book, he wrote, Suffering has made me realize what is important, what my values are. Hardship makes every minute beyond it all the more precious. I am grateful for even the smallest things life has given me. Wow. Hmm. Well, you know, know, when people like that have gone through so much more than I have, than any of us have, then we just have to say, wow, (laughs) to have that kind of perspective. Yeah, you do. And I, I, you know, sitting here listening to you talk about that, I, I know that I have had conversations with people where I have looked back on my life and said, you know, it's, uh, it's an unfortunate thing. And I, I've, I've actually said this, it's an unfortunate thing, that uh, I had to go through a divorce. However, the truth is I gained so much more than I lost. Because mm-hmm. through that tribulation, God and I got to a whole other level in our relationship that I'd have never gotten mm-hmm. to had it not been for that hardship. Had I never been forced to just be, you know, stop doing the, you know, oh, thou art so holy, oh, I love you. Meanwhile, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do the ritualistic stuff when your life is just falling apart around you and then you just get to that place where... You know what you want to say. You know God knows what you want to say. And so you just start to have that authentic conversation. And so there are things that I think happen to us. And and I can't remember if it was Paramahansa Yogananda who who said this in some form or fashion, but the idea that actually any time that you go through suffering, if it brings you closer to God, then it was always worth it. And whatever you lost wasn't even, you know, worth Right, and I love the way uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl explained it. He's the author of Man's Search for Meaning. He was also in a Holocaust uh, concentration camp. He said Mm -hmm. that despair can be expressed via a mathematical formula. D equals S minus W. And what does that mean? He said despair equals suffering without meaning. Meaning as soon as you can find some meaning to your suffering, then you are free of suffering to a large extent. And I talk about that in the book quite a bit, quite a bit. Yeah, and coming from Viktor Frankl, I mean, it's hard to argue, right? (laughs) Yeah, you've lived it. Okay, so there are several websites dedicated to Through God's Eyes, aren't there? Yes, uh, godseyesbook.com. Uh, will bring you to an overview of the book and links to every aspect of the book, from chapter excerpts to testimonials to radio interviews like this to links to sources of all the quotes in the book. And um, GodsEyesAmazon.com is the best place to order the book, GodsEyesAmazon.com. If you don't like to order from Amazon, you can go to GodsEyesOrder.com, which is a different website. Mm-hmm. 
And by the way, I yeah, I will tell the listeners that there are going to be links, all of the links that you just cited, as well as your email address, will be on the posting for this show as well as last week's show at speedway.com. But since we're having this conversation, how can people reach you, Phil? Sure. Uh, they can email me at godseyes at me.com. That's G-O-D-S-E-Y-E-S at me.com. And for any of your listeners who would like to email me, I will send them a sample chapter from Through God's Eyes, as well as a free copy of my ebook, The Logic of Living a Spiritual Life, Supporting a Life of Faith Through Logic and Reason. And that's on sale at Amazon, that ebook for 99 cents, but I'll send it to you for free. That is fantastic. And for those of you who are Apple junkies like me, um, you will find, because I, I, I always I like to download books on my uh, iPhone or my iPod, and uh, so when I'm on the train going back and forth to work, I like to either listen or to read. You will be delighted also to know that you can find Phil's book, um, through God's eyes on uh, iTunes, and you can actually download the book there as well. So with mm-hmm. that, listeners, thank you for joining me. Phil, it has been such a delight having you on last week and this week. Anything you want to say to our listeners in party? Well, I just would like to say thank you, and I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the kind of feedback I'm getting. When I was writing this book, I would hope that it's the kind of book that someone would look at and say, I got to get this for three of my friends. And that's been happening. People are buying multiple copies, five copies, 10 copies even, and because they see the value in it. And I don't even feel an ownership piece of it anymore. I just felt, you know, if you talk to writers or artists, um, they will tell you that their best work comes not from them, but through them. And I feel I was just a, a vehicle for it. And I'm just, grateful that is out in the world and people can find inspiration and value in it now. That is fantastic. Thank you very much, Phil, for being my special guest here on the Speedway Show. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show today. Visit the posting for this show on speedway.com for all of the links, contact information, and all things Phil Bolster. Until next week, this is Spiway saying go in peace and live your most joyous and fulfilling life through God's eyes. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle The Speedway Show. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply.